All right, folks, find your seats. Uh, I am your host, Adam, and sitting alongside me is the Walt Whitman of war. Um, he is the Frodo to my Samwise. He's cooler than a polar bear's toenails. That's your other host, Chris. God damn it, that was smooth. That was smooth like the cold side of the pillow, my friend. That's <laughs> what happens when you listen to Outcast while you work. <laughs> All I'm thinking is the Frodo and Sam comment right now. I made a promise. A promise. <laughs> you're going to get me there today, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm going to escort you to Mordor, and you're going to throw that ring in and teach me some shit. Teach us some shit. Our Mount Doom today is going to be a man, and this man, I'm, I'm so shocked. Like, I know you've heard of this guy. And everything, but I I can't wait to get into the nitty and gritty. And before we before we mm-hmm. announce who it is, this is somebody who I have. You run into those people where you have a very conflicted sense of like where they fall on the the moral scale, despite their like contributions to like society and everything like that. It's one of those things where just because someone is good at something doesn't make them a good person. Yeah. I think we see that a lot. We've seen that so fucking many times (laughs) doing this. And this guy is, this guy might be almost the inspiration for that. He's inspired a ton of like characters and real life people that we'll kind of get to. But the man in question that we're going to be talking about today is Mr. Howard Hughes. And Howard, man, he was complex is an understatement for, for this man and, Hopefully over the course of maybe the next hour and a fifteen hour and a half, um, you're gonna you're gonna walk away from this with. I'm gonna try to blow your fucking mind about this. I, I'm excited. I'm ready to be mind blown. Um, if you guys are at home, get ready, strap in, get yourself a drink, uh, do whatever you have to do, and let's get after it. Howard Robard Hughes Jr. Ooh, that's a hell of a name. That Robard's a, a good middle name. I don't Robard. even. I've never heard of that. I've never heard that. I thought they said Wobard, <laughs> which I thought was even crazier when I was listening. Um, not to, you know, throw throw shade at anyone. Um, not a lot of Howard Hughes podcasts out there, so I'm pretty excited to be able to put one out. Um, the other thing is, there's very there's very much a traditional linear way that people talk about Howard Hughes and. I'm going to choose to do it a little bit differently. I'm going to break Howard Hughes because up into like the different facets of Howard Hughes for you. Okay. Um, good analogy here. Um, you know, when they uh, talk about Tom Brady, how they'll compare his time in new England, um, to his time in Tampa, uh, but then there, he has certain decades that he's yeah. played. Oh yeah. In, and they he, split it up and they say he's had three hall of fame careers. Yep. Yeah. Okay. This guy has had three different, if not more lives. So we'll run it back. Um, he was born back uh, in 1905, December 24th, in a place called Humble, Texas. I guess it's a suburb or close to Houston. I huh. tried to look it up, but I couldn't get close enough on the map to find out. But close enough to Houston, where they consider it Houston, to uh, Aline Gano and Howard Hughes Sr. And as a child, Howard was never born into... He was 
always born into a, he was born into a wealthy family. So his dad actually uh, struck it rich by developing a drill bit for oil drilling. Being in Texas, I guess it makes oh, sense. Oh, yeah. And so I guess before Howard Hughes developed this new type of drill, and it's the one I think people, when they watch movies, are more familiar with, I guess it used to just be almost like an actual drill bit, like you'd have for your power drill. How would you get deep with that? It would just be like 80 feet tall. Well, and you would still have, you know, when they're drilling, they still have the post that they then thread into the... Yeah, the connect, And yeah. they go down. So I think it was like that. So... But with oil drilling, those kind of bits would burn up and get destroyed when they hit like thicker bedrock. And steel's I, only so strong at that point. Exactly. And I guess it's also the way it's moving, you know, because the friction at that point is only on the very tip of yeah. the drill or the very bottom of it. That's where your all the friction is. So it's going to heat up. It's going to soften over time. It's it, going to get dull. Exactly. And so there's some kind of some differing versions of it, but. Um, he was at some type of either like trade show or he was communicating with some type of inventor. And this guy had developed a drill bit that almost looked like he said two pine cones kind of interlocked with each other. And if remember in Armageddon, how the drill bits look like they have three separate, like almost saws on it. Yeah. And it's kind of spread out. So that's what he ends up inventing is it's called like the tricone or like bicone drill bit it's they're like burrs instead of the tip of a exactly and they all move independently yeah. and everything so it's like almost grinding instead of trying to drill a straight hole through it's like pulverizing the rock way more brilliant to do it that way way more efficient i'm sure exactly and so even more brilliant was the fact that when he invented this and patented it he didn't sell them he leased them oh yeah that's what McDonald's does with the ice cream machines. Mm-hmm. We'll get it. That'll be an episode one day. McDonald's ice cream machines. Very fascinating. The founding of that man. After seeing that founder, that's going to be a fucking, yeah, that's a good one. So it was able to basically chew through rock and basically opened up them getting deeper to be able to drill for oil. So every oil company is going to be utilizing this. So he becomes extremely wealthy. So Howard grows up in a wealthy family and his dad was away a lot on business with his uh, oil bit business and, uh, mommy dearest, good old um, Aline, she, going back on it, they think she may have suffered from OCD, which plays into Howard's life a little bit later on, not even that much later on, but, and she was very concerned about like germs and pathogens and stuff. I guess in Houston around that time, it was when polio was still a big thing. Oh yeah, and, early 1900s And then for sure. I, it wasn't fucking cholera, but there was other, some type of epidemic down there. It was something along the coast because it's like a swamp disease, not malaria. Yeah. It was something else, but it was down Giardia, in Houston. something like that. Something like that, but it was going on down in Houston, and so she was like super hyper aware and was like very much so like passing this stuff down to like Howard, Howard Jr. And I'm just going to say Howard now because when we talk yeah. about his dad, I'm just going to say his dad. Just like the ritualizing stuff and making sure that everything is very clean, like <laughs> Sort of Almost, germaphobe before germaphobe. Exactly. Like Howie Mandel, germaphobe type stuff. Like germs are everywhere. She was, he was their only child. So, I mean, she doted on him a lot. They have nothing but money. She's not working. Her full focus is on, yeah, is on, on Howie. And so it's like a, a very helicopter parent. Um, she didn't really let him go out and do a whole lot because she was worried about him. Um, he only had like a, maybe one or two friends. He went away to camp at one point. They were able to convince her to let him go away to camp. And this isn't camp in the sense of like, Hey, you're going an hour. Like they sent him to camp in like Northern Pennsylvania. Ooh. It, they're fucking rich. They can afford whatever. Yeah. Uh, 
Pennsylvania doesn't sound like a great summer camp, but well, she was such so obsessed with Howard that she was basically like, um, they were in uh, her and her husband were in New York for a business meeting of his, and she's like, I gotta go see him, like I I need to go see him enough to where she took a train up there, and I think she just observed him, didn't even oh. let her know, just was like, I need to make sure my baby's okay, get eyes on him, yeah, yeah, and Weird. so she put a lot of this onto him. Well, this kid is like a fucking prodigy. And at the age of 11, he builds Houston's first wireless radio transmitter. Like the cities? Yeah, the first one in Houston. He didn't build it for the city. Oh, he built gotcha. the first one in Houston, yeah. which is okay. even crazier because it's Houston. It's like a major, major city. Major metropolitan area. Yeah. I don't know in the 1900s, like the early 1900s, how big it was, but it's still... Ooh, this is going to sound bad. Austin's the capital of Texas, Yes. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. not Houston. But Austin isn't that that far from Houston. Yeah. So, I mean, it's still... And Houston's a port city, so if anything, that's going to develop True. faster than Austin. I didn't think about that coming yeah. up through the Gulf. That yeah. would definitely be it before they turned into, what, NASA and yeah. a few other things. Mm-hmm. So, age 12, he builds a motorized bike. He basically straps a motor to his bicycle using parts from his father, a steam engine that his father had. Hell yeah. And he charges neighborhood kids five cents each to ride this thing. So he's already like at age 12 entrepreneurial mindset is already kicking in there. Well, he saw that his dad leased these bits to people. So I'm sure that was part but of like, like at age 12, you build a bike with a steam engine. Why aren't you just riding the fuck out of that? I never let another kid get on it for a while. Yeah, so he was industrious. He was looking to make yeah. money. Not only did he figure out the leasing system, but he knew that money was, he seems kind of like the person that as soon as he would get it built, he'd be like, okay, I did it. I'm bored with it. Like yeah, someone else move on, to the, move on to the next shit. So age 14, he takes his first flying lessons. So, I mean, he's wasting no time. And in school, he was, when it came to, like, any type of, like, engineering-related type subjects, mathematics, engineering, things like that, very, very talented. He excelled at it. But he was just pretty much uninterested in pretty much everything else, like reading and all that kind of shit. He knew how to read, but it just wasn't something where he was... So he got the reputation of kind of a not really a model student and not really like a great student just because he was only interested in things that he was good at. Yeah. Yeah. Which is probably a major issue with school systems nowadays that like you're not allowing enough focus on the things that people are, you're not cultivating what they're actually interested in. You're forcing them to be so broad that it pulls, you know, not everyone's going to excel in everything. When I was in grade school, we had the gifted and talented program Mm -hmm. and somehow I ended up there. And it was... Oh, be be nice to yourself. No, I, this was a very short-lived stay in the Gibson <laughs> Talented program. They found you out quick? <laughs> well, it was like they were building with, like, Legos and shit like that. And it, it was like fifth grade. It was like, what are we doing here? What What is the thought That's, process yeah. behind using Legos? And they're like, well, you're supposed to be building something architectural. I'm like, it's Legos. Like, you don't... You're just snapping shit together. And I guess maybe... They're got, looking more for, like use of space like yeah. are you making stuff proportionate and everything you're like yeah my spaceship is completely proportionate uh-huh. of what it needs to be that's why it was short-lived because there wasn't a lot like i didn't get the concept of what was going mm-hmm. on i just thought we had to play with lego i'm not supposed so... to build a pirate ship no no that was what i was why are you giving for? me pirate ship pieces <laughs> so he ends up going to caltech for a little stint and i think he does some more stuff with engineering and everything at caltech so um when he's 17 his mother passes away um during like a routine procedure she had a I'm going to butcher the name, an, an endopic pregnancy. I I don't know what that is. Sorry, I didn't look into it. But it I was think what, it's where they have to pull everything out, isn't it? I'm not sure. They had to put her under, and this is where kind of the 
what happened is, you know, when like you never think about it nowadays because anesthesia is so normal. Yeah. But like, there's a risk that you don't come out of the anesthesia and oh, don't react well. Very and so, much so. And so that's what happened to her. She actually passed away um, under anesthesia At, uh, during a surgery, not during birth. During a surgery, but it, it was, was from surgery. she had An surgery on something that happened from complications of I, the I guess so. birth. Gotcha. And so that, I mean, of course that, that hits him really heavy. I mean, how, how's it not? Yeah. He lost his mother, especially with him and his mother's relationship and how close they were and everything. He was essentially like a single parent, single child because his dad was off doing shit. Yeah. So at that point, I think Howard senior kind of takes a little bit more interest in him. And at some point they, he takes him to Los Angeles because that was where there were some of his business with like the oil drip billing and all that kind of shit. So he kind of gets a taste of California and kind of of that area. And then when he's 19, Howard senior passes away. Jesus. So two years after two years long? apart. Damn. So at that point, were I they get, old when they had him? I don't think they were really that old. Huh. Uh, oh, he dies because he has a fucking heart attack mid meeting in the middle of like a meeting. No way. Like clutches it like the full on, like <laughs> dramatic reenactment of clutching his chest during a meeting and has a fucking heart attack. Wow. So I guess in Texas at that at that time you weren't an adult till you were twenty one, and probably not a bad idea. Basically, he was a ward of like other family members. Well, other family members were after, and at this point it was called Hughes Tool Company, is what it was. So they were kind of after his money from that, trying to keep him as like a ward, and so he went and got emancipated, and he had control, I think, of like seventy five percent of Hughes Tools. And then through some other means, I think he bought out family members because they knew that they didn't have controlling interest in it. So what, why keep it? Yeah. They were getting paid. Take the money. So he's running Hughes Tools at like 19 years old. So there were three things that he said he wanted to be great at in his life or wanted to be. Um, one of them was the greatest golfer, which he ended up becoming like a great golfer, like a solid par golfer. So scratch golfer. Um he played it for the most part throughout his life until some injuries that we'll get to uh, forced him to stop playing. He wanted to be the uh, greatest pilot, and then he wanted to be the greatest movie producer. So first thing he does, he's like, I'm going to start checking shit off this list. I'm already golfing. I'm already pretty good at that. And so before he takes off for Hollywood, he somehow gets set up and arranged. They feel like he needs to be married. And so his family somehow, like his aunt, arranges him to get married to this what? woman named Ella Rice. I don't, I don't know how shit works He's a rich then. dude about to go to California and he's going to get married in humble Texas? He's just being told what to do. I don't, I don't know. Oh, buddy, you own a major company. You walk away from that well, deal. He, you go find yourself listen, a hobble this, this on is the not, beach. This marriage is not going to be a, a traditional marriage okay. by, any, by any stretch. So who he marries is Ella Rice. And she was actually like the great grandniece of the founder of Rice University. Huh. So they moved to LA together and he moves there to become a filmmaker. And through, I think his first movie, he's approached by this guy. I can't remember what his name is. He's an actor. And he's like, Howard, I need like $40,000 to do this movie. I want to star in it. And the movie was called Swell Hogan. So... He Howard produces it or funds it. The movie gets made, and during screenings, this thing is such dog shit that they try to salvage it by editing, and even after all that stuff, it is so bad that Howard just eats the cost and has the movie destroyed. So there's no fucking evidence of it. So that's why it wasn't 
setting out to be the greatest producer ever. It, he doesn't. <laughs> but the thing is, is they said that every failure he had, he took away something from it. So this was basically an entire lesson in what not to do as a producer. So his next go round, he was already had a leg up. He already had a leg up. And he's in Hollywood. And he's, so and, and he's in Hollywood. So he uses the money from Hughes Tools to buy this place called RKO Studios. And they normally put out like 30 movies a year. And as soon as he got there, he shut down the studios for six months and did an entire investigation on everybody who worked for the studio to make sure that they, all of their like political leanings and affiliations weren't skewed toward any type of communism. The fucking red devil. <laughs> the red back scares back the red, again, it's, it's fucking already starting at that point. This is pre, <laughs> this is fucking pre world war two at this. This is pre world war one. USSR is probably not even a thing yet. Is at it? this point, I think, um, well, he, hold on. He's 20. So that's 19. It's after world war two. Okay. So there's, there's uh, some communism's in the air. It's in the air. There's a whiff of communism. So, he he buys this studio, does this investigation, ends up, I think, firing a shit ton of people, and then sets everybody back to work. He even, like, with the starlets and the, like, movie stars that came in, he had to make sure, like, and investigate them because he wanted to make sure they were representing the, like, Hughes name in these movies and that they were the right spokespeople yeah. who were supposed to be doing this. So once he gets this thing back up, they bump down from 30 movies a year, and he's like, we'll make, like, seven to nine movies a year out of this studio just to make sure we're doing it right. 30 movies a year? I mean, that's, for a studio, you gotta understand that, like, these aren't all winners. That sounds like a lot of movies, though. Like, do studios nowadays? Like, think of Warner Brothers. Warner's Warner's putting out, you know, Universal. They're putting out stuff all the fucking time. They got movies coming out every couple weeks. Yeah, I guess it is. And TV. So, I mean... They're just so large. Yeah, and I mean, this is also during what they consider like the golden age of Hollywood. The Hollywood so, yeah. so he comes out and he ends up uh, producing a couple other movies, um, a couple comedies. And then he kind of his big and they were well received. He does this weird thing where he always has like their buddy comedies. And they're always like the two like main guys always like fall in love with like the same girl. And that's where the hilarity ensues. Yeah. With them. And they're always like soldiers stationed overseas and they like meet a French girl and they both are trying to date her at the same time. It's a very weird trope, but I mean, it's still done today. I, like the buddy comedy movie. It's enjoyable too. Like oh, thinking definitely. of it. Yeah. So the, he then does this movie that is basically supposed to be about, um, dog fighting in world war one. So biplanes and it's called, uh, hell's angels. And, he like buys up somewhere like in the neighborhood of like 40 plus world war two biplanes from both like, like from the, the government, from the United States, France, Germany, like all of these. Cause the movie's also supposed to have like German aircraft. Oh French yeah. You have to buy yeah. it from another country too. So during the production of this, basically the production total costs like $4 million, which is insane for that time, especially yeah. cause he's privately funding it himself. Yeah, I, I mean, he's probably making a little bit off of the other movies. N- nowhere near this, though. Yeah. I mean, it's more about, like, the reputation and, like, the accolades, I guess, more than the money. So, with Hell's Angels, because it's so elaborate, um, imagine you're having to film, like, planes in the air, biplanes, dogfighting with each other, all this kind of stuff. So they would fly in with, like, a larger plane mm-hmm. and have cameras attached to it and then, like, be filming all this kind of stuff. Big cameras, too, huh? Oh, yeah, like, mounted to the plane. Was it about the 303rd bombardment group? It must be if you're looking at it. Well, 
I sort of reverse engineered something that I was going to ask about, but figured you probably wouldn't know. Uh, Hell's Angels Biker Gang. Yeah. Is named after the 303rd, Jesus Christ, Bombardment Squadron, uh, World War II. Never mind. Not World War I. But who's to say that that didn't get carried over Hell's Angels, and they adapted that name in World War II based on that movie? That could be. Yeah, okay. I mean, if you're going to create, and there's a movie already about planes, and you're a fighter squadron in World War II... And someone liked that movie. You're like, why don't we call ourselves the Hell's Angels? So, in a weird way, Howard Hughes could have named the one of the largest biker gangs. It's, ever it's, in it's very logic to get to. It's I yeah. think it's, there's logical steps okay. to get to that point. So, he's actually piloting one of the planes at this time, and this is where Howard has his first crash. So he tries to do a stunt where he goes into like a tailspin or a dive or something like that, and doesn't pull up in time, and basically crashes. And I think he ends up doing something. He breaks his jaw. Or something like that, or his cheekbone during the crash. Which I mean, at that point, it's literally you sitting in like a leather seat. There's no, there's no safety. It's so he's lucky, the lucky best enough case to walk away from this. Exactly. So the movie gets made. It gets and it's getting ready to be screened, and they're getting it all edited and everything like that. And around this time, I got to find the movie. I think it was called The Jazz Singer. I can't believe I forgot to write this down. In the time that they're editing, another movie comes out and it has sound. So now it's not just moving pictures now. Audiences want sound. He has to go back and he reshoots the fucking movie for sound. And it costs him like another like 1.5. And that's what brings it up to the 4 million. He basically has to film the movie twice and do all that shit. He, this is where you're going to start seeing some of the OCD and the mental and behavioral stuff kick in. Yeah. So... Because, you know, if you're looking up at a clear blue sky and you're filming planes and they're all flying around the same speed, you have no gauge of how quick these planes are moving. So he's watching these edits and he's like, everything looks like it's moving so fucking slow. He's like, there's no point of reference or frame of reference. So he's like, we need clouds. And he's like, I want big, fluffy fucking clouds that you can see, that you can see the planes moving in Mm -hmm. and out of and get a, a grasp of the speed of these things. So he has to shut down production. So they're in like, he's out on like in Van Nuys or something like that. And he's got like this huge private airstrip and all this shit for his planes and his filming. And they're looking, he hires, I think, a meteorologist from like UCLA UCLA or something like that. And he's like, find me clouds. And he ends up grounding these aircraft and like shutting down production for like months. And it's costing like $5,000 a day. That he's not doing this, which even nowadays, I don't know from a production standpoint, that would be like way more 50,000, if not more a a day now to shut this down. Eventually they find clouds in Oakland and he, just because they find clouds in Oakland, somehow that means there's going to be clouds in Oakland. He has to move the entire production to Oakland and he's able to finally film it with clouds. So you can see the planes and get a, you know, a scope of the speed and all this shit. He does it for sound. And so he ends up releasing it, and they did it at um, Grauman's Chinese Theater. Uh-huh. And I'm still there. Yeah. They had – everyone was lining the streets and everything. They had planes flying low over fucking the boulevard as part of this while, like, they were doing the red carpet walk. So what – what did we decide this was kind of the timing of? Like, 19 – So this would be – he's uh, 20 – He's in his early 20s, so this would be 1925 to 1930, I think. There's no way that people had seen a whole lot of planes in their lives, no. right? So all this is going on during this. And to, yeah, and to be able to view and be like, 
so this was what war was like? Yeah. Like how yeah, exactly. That's nuts. So I mean it is groundbreaking in that sense. Huh. And so it's the movie ends up the movie ends up becoming a huge hit. At some point he ends up, I think, taking over and directing the movie. And the movie ends up winning for I don't think it was best director, but it wins an award, like an Academy Award for I think best it's cinematography, I think, just because of the camera work mm. and the, the visuals. Um, he then comes out with a movie afterward and he starts getting more realistic with his movies and it causes him problems at some point with like the motion picture board. He comes out with the original Scarface. He directed the original Scarface. The Who one was that was original about Scarface. Who that was one, original 2110? That one was about Al Capone. Oh, okay. And everything. And so I don't know if Tony Montana, because I know he has a scar on his face from the whole, what is the chainsaw shit uh, in the movie? Or it was something in Cube. I can't remember exactly what it was. Time. But I maybe that took from that, because if you're a gangster, a coke dealing gangster in Miami, are you going to idolize previous gangsters like Al Capone? And he had the nickname of Scarf. Like, I don't know. So it could be that too. Yeah. So Scarface is a hit. He does a movie called The Outlaw, and the motion picture pictures board's big problem with that is um, the starlet in that apparently was dressed too like provocatively <laughs> and everything, so he had trouble getting it through like ratings. Not even showing like nudity. She was like, probably it, showing her elbows back then. Or like, you know, a little much. bit of low cut, and you were able yeah. to see the tops of her boobs or some shit. So that's his, that's kind of his reign as like a movie producer and everything. And he doesn't quit with the studio and everything, he still owns that. So he, in 1932, as part of when he was working with the planes, he was tinkering with these planes that he was with on set, trying to make them faster, yeah. trying to make them um, to where they could fly further distances. He was basically, he's like, I'm going to innovate this. I'm going to go into advanced aircraft research and aircraft development. So he opens um, <clears throat> or he starts Hughes Aircraft in 1932 when he's 27 years old. And he develops this plane called the Hughes H1 Racer. And it's completely, it looks like all stainless steel. And his big thing, he's like, I want to set the speed record. I need you to design this. And he designs it with, it's like the first plane that has, or one of the first couple planes that has flush rivets for no air drag or anything. Yeah, aerodynamics, uh, mm -hmm. that would be huge. So he, him and his team designed this plane. And in 1935, he sets the air, um, aircraft speed record uh, at 352 miles an hour. And before he's going up, the guy's like, you have enough for like two or three passes to make an attempt. He's like, we're not going for the record today. This is the first time he gets this thing flying. It's the first test flight. And so he goes on two runs. He increases the speed each time. And then I think he does a third run, and I don't think he was supposed to do a third run. And after he does the third run, the thing runs out of fuel. Stalls, runs out Be of fuel. Because they're not putting a ton of fuel because they're trying to go as fast as yeah, possible. Yeah, they need weight. Light, lightness, yeah. So his second crash is he crash lands and, like, does a crash landing and, like, saves the plane, but crashes into a beet field. And he, and he, walks, and he walks away from it. And I think he ends up, like, cutting his foot or spraining his ankle or something. How does he keep living through this? They're plane crashes. They are, but I think this one wasn't like... This one was basically like an attempted landing. Sort of like he ditched it and it went wrong. No, it just ran out of gas. So he still had the momentum. He just wasn't able to get back to the airstrip. Oh, where they were just, taking off. it wasn't a smooth... And he, exactly. Okay. So he just set it down still. on its belly. Exactly. It could have tipped over yeah. or, or anything like that. I think like most that. deadly crashes happen at like takeoff or landing. So at this point he starts to go on this tear of like setting records for aircraft flight. 
So he puts longer wings on it, and he's like, now I'm going to set the record flying from LA to Newark across the country. So he ends up setting it uninterrupted flight from LA to Newark in seven hours and 28 minutes, which breaks the record, I think, by like an hour, maybe an hour and a half. That's fast by like today's standards almost. And it's a prop plane, yeah. a single engine prop plane. And they carry enough fuel. He he expanded when he expanded the wings. They were able he to expand the fuel capacity and everything. Okay. Um, they're saying that the the plane was so so um, so well built that they see similarities in the development of like the Japanese Zero, which was like the top fighter plane mm-hmm. in World War II, and also like some of the German fighters. They saw it kind of like you can look at them and you can see more of the similarities in the Zero fighter, but maybe just the way that it was structured and it was a monoplane. Maybe that's kind of the inspiration mm-hmm. it had for it. And so that plane is actually still around and it was donated to the uh, Smithsonian in like 75. So in 38, he's like, OK, I've flown across the country. I got that record squared away. He's like, let's do let's do the around the world record. So he gets a plane from, I think, Lockheed. And he hasn't started full on like building bigger planes yet. Like he built the H1. He takes this plane from Lockheed. It's a twin engine prop plane and basically takes it and him and his crew go through it. They put new engines on it. They put a larger fuel capacity. They do some other work to it. Is this the one I'm thinking of? This isn't the Spruce Goose. Okay. So we're going to get that one's later and we're going to get to that one. Wasn't there like the Enola Gay too? The Enola Gay was the one that dropped the the, oh, the, that's the right. Stratofort- yeah, yeah, yeah. fortress okay. that dropped the bomb. And so him and a crew of four guys, they um, set out and the old record was getting around the world in 186 hours. Because you do have to stop for fuel and yeah. get back up. He ends up setting it in 91 hours. So less than <laughs> half the time. In half. So he goes from New York goes to Paris. I think they had to go to Ireland first. Cause I remember hearing something that they were like caught in some weather. And then as they came out of the weather, they saw like the cliffs of Ireland or some shit. So then he goes to Paris, lands in Paris and everywhere he's landing. It's like a fucking celebration. Like people are at the airport. He's there. He needs to do maybe a little bit of maintenance work, refuels, and then they're back again. So, and then they're back in the air again. It's him and four other guys, like a mechanic, a navigator, an electronics guy and then somebody else. I can't remember what all their jobs were. So would this be more like in the shape and in the vein of like a commercial airliner as opposed to like a military plane or no, um, it wasn't open cockpit, obviously. Oh, definitely there had not. To be no, no, no. It was a, like a twin engine with a fuselage okay. and everything. So, I mean, it wasn't like huge. I'm trying to think, think of like the size of maybe like, um, a, le- a smaller, like G five. Okay. But, but yeah. maybe a little bit bigger cause it's not jet engine. Um, so sets that record, goes Paris, flies over Nazi Germany, and apparently Hitler had made an announcement that he wasn't supposed to or anything like that. They get over Nazi Germany. He flies to Moscow, then heads towards Siberia, a place called Ormsk, then Yak Yaktuk, Yak I don't know, it's Y A K U T S K, Yaktsk. Then flies over the fucking North Pole to Fairbanks, Alaska. And then flies to Minneapolis, then back to New York. So the around the world is kind of like he does circumnavigate, but he doesn't go like full on equ- equatorial. Yeah, he around. like went around the tip. Kind of. 
It still counts, man. Yeah, uh, yeah, obviously. That's, it's it's almost it's almost probably the same type of deal that the person that set it for 186. They did a similar thing. Okay. That's why it counted. He can't be like I just fucking shaved and went around the North Pole and then came right back. I put a crown on the on the world. Exactly. As soon as I saw the North Pole, I just fucking banked hard around it and then came back like one of those fucking Red Bull yeah, like air race Fighter things. Pilot. Yeah. So in 39, he's presented the Congressional Medal. He's called, like, the Aviator of the Year. I guess that was a thing back then. I don't know how who would have been competing with him for Aviator of the Year of, against the guy that fucking sets all these records. But he refused to pick up the Congressional Medal. Probably like him and Charles Lindbergh, and that's it. He, pretty much. So He refused to pick up the medal? Yeah. It ends up getting sent <laughs> to him later after, after another incident. And so at this point... World War II is kind of gearing up, so the government's starting to assign contracts. Yeah. He's already pretty wealthy at this point, and so he has connections in Congress and everything, so he's able to put some pressure and be like, I should get a couple of those contracts. So they give him a few contracts. One of them is for a spy plane, and then another one is for, because everything for World War II is having to go across the Atlantic, mm-hmm. and you got wolf packs of U-boats and everything sinking all these ships, and so the army is like, we need to find a way to get like soldiers and equipment over, over the ocean where there's no risk of these things getting hit by U-boats. So they give him a contract to develop basically an insanely large, like flying boat, like troop transport that can carry tanks, soldiers, Jeeps, all that kind of stuff. So that's what ends up being the H4, the Hercules. And then they, all of his critics, they call it the Spruce Goose. And the reason they call it that is because with war rationing, Aluminum and all that kind of stuff wasn't available because they were using all of that on the already approved manufactured planes that they were putting Lockheed, into production. The big, exactly. big places. And it's not just, you know, it's not just Howard getting these contracts. There was a point that he made, and I'm not saying that the movie is entirely true, the Aviator movie, but he does state some facts and they make sense. I'm not going to state the numbers are completely accurate. But I think he's awarded $50 million for both the development of the spy plane and for the Hercules, the H-4. Which seems like a lot, but I think during the war he comes out and he says there was something around the neighborhood of four hundred to five hundred million dollars allocated yeah. to different. Um, it's not what, what am I trying to say? Aircraft manufacturers or military aircraft like Lockheed, the military Boeing, industrial complex, pretty much <laughs> that are awarded to all of these different companies. Because one percent of the pie, yeah. Because I think that's one thing that people don't realize is that not everything that they see was like the first try or the only try that these companies made. Yeah, they're going through and developing all of these different versions of planes, and some of them just don't fucking work worth dick. And millions of dollars are wasted on the development of these things that never even see the light of day. They might have two or three different changes on yeah. it, but it's entirely in the end, it's just one that you choose. It, one exactly. Model. Yep. It's the one that performs the best. And, you know, so the Hercules, because there was rationing for materials, they couldn't get aluminum. So they actually built most of it out of birch. And this thing Tree? is fucking, yes, it's made of, that's why all his like critics and detractors called it the spruce goose. It wasn't made out of spruce, uh, but it, yeah, okay. maybe because it yeah. rhymes. I don't know if the what rhymes with birch. They probably birch bird of, seems like it was right there. That there you go. <laughs> Birds can be cool. If you say goose, you're just like that's kind of a lame bird. A goose is a very awkward looking. <laughs> they animal. are, but they're mean as fuck too. Uh-huh. So this thing is fucking enormous, and this actually becomes like an obsession of his developing these things or this plane. It's so big, it's got eight engines, four on each wing. It's got a 319-foot wingspan. And so after he's awarded this contract, he's developing this, but 
the development on it was really slow because he was so obsessive about things that he needed to have a say in this. So he had a you know, a crew that was putting this together of workers and all this kind of stuff. He had guys that were aircraft designers that knew this stuff. Uh-huh. But certain decisions Howard had to go through, and if he was busy, he didn't get to the decisions. He was really indecisive about stuff. So just his his obsessive-compulsive disorder and everything, forcing him to make these decisions that he had trouble doing, delayed this thing, like, by a ton of time. It never even saw production. Mm. In fact, it became like a hot button issue with him because he had to end up going under like a congressional investigation and go testify to Congress because they felt like he was like a war profiteer or he defrauded the American people out of $50 million. When, and then when he gets there, he brings up the point. He's like, you guys realize that you also awarded like $400 million to these other developers and you got like eight planes out of it and all this kind of shit. So he's like, I don't know why I'm the only one here under congressional hearing. Let's have an answer for this. And I'll kind of actually touch on what that was really about when we kind of get a little bit later. Uh, do you, fun fact, do you know where the Spruce Goose is now? I do know where the Spruce Goose is. It's in Oregon. I can't remember the name of the town. Tillamook. Is it in Tillamook? It is right outside of Tillamook. It's probably 20 minutes away from the cheese factory in Tillamook. So we should probably visit that. Yeah, that I've been there. It's fucking cool. And did, you, not, did you see the plane? Yeah. Not only that, the plane is on one half of the building. The other half, indoor water park. Talk about the weirdest combination ever. There's, that sounds like the greatest fucking time ever. Yeah, the Spruce Goose on one side, indoor water park on the other side. Okay, well, we're going. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. To. So. Oh, and we got to go to the cheese factory, obviously. Well, uh, that goes without saying. You can't go that far and not do cheese. So kind of getting back to, to 39, he's getting that entrepreneurial itch again. He wants to, you know, take, make his mark on American aircraft or worldwide air aviation. He, um, in 39, starts buying up shares of TWA. And I think TWA at that point stood for Transcontinental... TW. No, something airlines. Yeah, TWA? Yeah, it was Transcontinental. Oh, one word, Transcontinental. And I don't know what the W was. It ends up being made into Trans... He changes it to Transworld after he has plans for them to fly international. Expand. Apparently at that point, the only international carrier was Pan Am. And that comes into play big. When he takes over TWA. So he ends up buying, starts buying up shares kind of quietly. He's not doing it publicly. And in by 44, he owns 78% of stock in TWA. So he's the, he's the decision maker. He's the tastemaker. And he never has an official position with TWA, but he's basically the manager and running the entire thing. So he's setting up TWA to challenge Pan Am, not only from an intercontinental standpoint, because I guess TWA had the best routes in the United States, and then Pan Am was more worldwide. Yeah, they probably focused on international shit. So he starts getting plans to uh, turn TWA into a worldwide carrier. He gets uh, set up with Lockheed to buy these brand new planes called the Constellation. And it's like a 50 or 60 passenger seat plane. It's got, they used to have sleeping berths. So you know how like big Ooh. planes now, like going overseas, have the big comfy chairs and everything. They used to have literally dedicated like sleeping berth seats. See, I can believe that because you see pictures of airplanes like in back in the day and the shit looked comfortable. They had like, like tables in front of them and they're serving yeah. like full meals. You and had shit. so much room, but just ripping, to... ripping darts. <laughs> oh yeah. Ripping cigs left just and right. sitting in the, but that was, I'm sure what it came down to was eventually they're like, hey, we need to make this more profitable. Well, if they know they're having to, even if you're flying a seven hour flight, like you are, like you did from New, you know, LA to Newark, 
you're wanting to sleep, especially if it's a oh, red yeah. or something. And if you're planning for international, you're adding more time. So, of course, you're going to need to have that. But now they fucking have planes. I don't think it's in America yet. I think it's over in China, maybe, where you actually don't sit or stand. You just, like, lean into the seat. You're, like, It's F45. like a zero. It's like a gaming. Like, it's like I'm sitting right now. It's like a comfy chair, and it's got the pod. That oh, goes around there's those, seal. but the fact that they're packing so many people into some airplanes now, like you don't even get a seat. You get like a slant place to just lean against. So it's a, there's trying to be more economical with room to where it's not even like you taking up knee room. Yeah. You're almost like, like on the Gravitron, you're just held up almost up exactly. Like by, yeah. the, by the force. You're of the at plane. a 45 instead of a, a 90. So you're, you don't go out as far. So he ends up these, um, constellations that I think Lockheed is making, he ends up buying like the first 40 of them off the line. And I guess the advantage that that gives you is no one else can buy those planes until they're manufactured because they don't have 40 of them ready. Yeah, no, it's going to take time for everybody else to get them. So he's like, I think that gives us a two-year jump or something like that on on Pan Am from getting these planes. So he's going to use these essentially to be the like the workhorse of like the international flights and everything. I think you have to go from New York to... Somewhere in Greenland or Iceland. I'm trying to think what it would be. And then from there, you would go over to like uh, England or Ireland or something. And then you could go to Paris. You still couldn't do a full flight across. That kind of makes sense. Especially because you're adding weight. It, I think it's yeah. a weight issue. Because with him doing it, it was him and four guys packed with fuel in the smaller plane so they could fly it faster probably. Well, and even now you have to go with the jet stream. They probably didn't have a real good understanding of the jet stream. Here's the other thing that. too, is planes did not fly as high oh, so at that point too. And the lower you fly, the more turbulent there is. You oh. have to get above the weather. And I think the weather ceiling is something like 15,000, 20,000 feet. And so his big thing is like, we need to get above the weather. Yeah. People, they're 1% at that time, I think 1% of the public had ever been on an airplane because they didn't trust it. He's like, if we can get above the weather where it's not bumpy as shit and scaring everybody, we can get every man, woman, and child to trust being on an airplane. So that's that's kind of his plan. Through some, there's some shit that goes down where I think there's a violation or something that grounds the, the air, that grounds all the new planes or something, so he loses out. And... The the rumor or kind of, I don't know if it's completely corroborated, but it makes a lot of sense. So the president of Pan Am at the time, his name was Juan Tripp. And because Pan Am had the monopoly, you let someone else come in there, you're losing half your profits or however much gets pulled over to TWA. Yeah. So I think he used some influence with a senator from Maine. His last name was Brewster. I can't remember what his first name was. To write, well, he doesn't write it. He introduces a bill onto the floor of Congress that basically provides Pan Am exclusive monopoly rights to fly international, somehow claiming that it's an advantage to only have one carrier that does that because it's easier to control, not that competition would make it more affordable. Yeah. So he basically, they write the bill and give it to this guy to introduce to Congress. It's called the CBA or something. I can't remember exactly what the bill is called. And so they're coming after, they start kind of coming after Howard to prevent him from being able to launch this phase of TWA. And that's where it kind of comes into play with him getting called into these congressional hearings for war profiteering and taking advantage of the American people, tax money, whatever it was. So during... um during these hearings, he basically calls attention to the fact that, and this is how shrewd of a guy he was. He wasn't like, he he wasn't going to play fair or clean. He wasn't that type of person at all. 
And that's, and in this scenario, I, I definitely don't, you know, don't fault him for doing this. He basically had this um, Brewster guy, private investigators following this guy because he knew he was the one that was pushing, the, that was against him basically in Congress. He was the one that was heading up this whole committee. Yeah. And so during like the hearing, he is like alluding to, he's like, so um, you were, you flew down to Panama. He's like, <laughs> or not Panama, you flew down to Peru. He's like, what were you doing down there? He's like, I think you flew down there on Pan Am's dime. And he's like, I was looking at trade agreements. He's like, Ooh. send a lot of lobsters down to Peru, do you? You're doing a lot of trade down there with it. And he had like found out about all these vacations he had taken on Pan Am's like dime or like discounted. And he's like, how many times have you been over to one trip's office here in New York or over in New York? And he's not saying, he's like, do you want me to tell you how many times you've been over? <laughs> and basically turns this entire hearing completely around. He explains the the whole fact. He's like, yeah, he's like, if if anyone is the most disappointed that I didn't get this, you know, the Hercules completed in time to participate in the war, he's like, it's it's me. And he's like, do you know how much of my own money I sunk into this? And he's like, by the way, he's like, it's going to fly. I'm going to complete this on my own dime. And if it doesn't fly, I'll leave the fucking country. Well, it's not. At that point, he's probably put way more into it. But like you say, just because you didn't get it done in time, like there's going to be other purposes. We're going to have other conflicts, clearly. Yeah, but so, this thing, I, I, this, the, the, I'll, I'll jump forward to the actual spruce goose. What ends up happening? It's fine that we're jumping back and forth in time. We're all getting information about Howard Hughes here, right? Yeah, new information. So, um, he ends up piloting it, and I think the, it was in '47. So they are out in Los Angeles Bay. They get the, they have to transport the plane, which means having it in just the fuselage, which is enormous. It's almost as big as the wingspan in length. And then the wings all transport it and then assemble it basically to where it's floating in the water and assembling it. It's so big. It can't like be transported any other way. So how did they they just transport it by boat? Uh by like huge like semis. Oh, you know, like across the country? It, no, 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 because he was still... he His um, factory, Hughes factory, was like in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. So yeah. not... Okay. So it wasn't that... They just had to get it to Los Angeles. He Bay. never goes back to Texas or anything like that? Uh, something about Texas. He never really went back there at all. I get it. He didn't have to. He put a guy in charge. I'm trying to think of his name. Noah Dietrich, I think was his name. Early on, he hires Noah Dietrich to basically be... Hughes tool. Yep. And he runs it really well, too. Okay. And he's also the guy that's coming up to Howard being like, you need more fucking money for this movie? He's like, he's like, <laughs> he's like, pull more money out of the tool company. <laughs> he's like, find the money. He's like, no, I don't know what to tell you. Find the fucking money. And so it ends up on November 2nd, 1947. Hughes pilots himself. Hugh, news crews. Everywhere. There's even like a news crew in the plane with him as he's getting ready to take off that are flying with him. He's got like his mechanic guy that's watching all of the engine yeah. and all that kind of shit. So the thing ends up taking off out of Los Angeles Harbor. It flies one mile. It comes off the water 70 feet and he flies it for one mile. And then he sets the thing down. He's like, it flew. Yeah, it counts. And at that point, I don't know if the thing ever, I don't think it ever flew again. He, well, it was made of birch. So it's probably, it good was, it but <laughs> I, it, it wasn't for that reason. And I'm going to kind of jump back a little bit to other stuff in his life. And you're going to find out what he ends up starting to deal with and why he never really flies this thing again. That's probably because he's scared that he continuously crashes planes. <laughs> that would probably be it. So in, I want to say it was like 43, 
he is doing training runs on Lake Mead, I think, in oh, a... God damn it, he's going to crash again, isn't he? <laughs> in a Sarkovsky, Sarkorsky amphibious plane, a smaller float plane. And yes, he has his third crash while practicing the water takeoffs and water landings. <laughs> he survives, but two pilot, two other guys die. Oh, that's worse. That's way worse. So, and I think he ends up getting a little more, I think he ends up getting like another concussion or something like that in it. And a ton of survivor's guilt. I don't know if he's, we're going to get to some you, stuff, you man. Don't think I don't think there. Yeah, I'll tell you about something here in just a second that's probably going to let you know that there probably wasn't a lot of survivor's guilt that this guy had about this kind of stuff. So that was his third crash. So in 46, this is when the, um, it's called the XF-11. It's the spy plane that he was paid to develop. And it's a twin engine, um, smaller plane. It's got like two booms with the engine going back and then like a double tail. Yeah. And then the pilot sits in the middle and then the nose cone was going to have camera equipment and recording equipment. So all of these first flights, he fucking does himself. So he gets the thing up, and they're like, "Okay, Howard, you have you have like I think 30, 30 minutes of flight time, forty five minutes of flight time. We're just testing this thing out to make sure it gets in the air. Bring it back. Thing takes off fine. It's got um, if the movie is accurate, which I assume they wouldn't embellish on this part." The rotors on it are almost alternating rotors. It's got two of them, and they go in opposite directions or something to create more force like and speed. No, no, no. So you have one set of propellers here in front, one sitting behind it, and they alternate pitch. And because of the way that the actual uh, propellers are pitched, they're cutting through the air and, causing, and giving it more speed. It wasn't an armed plane, so it had to have more speed to outrun fighters. Yeah. Huh. So he's up. Thing takes off fine. Flight's going great, and he's 45 minutes past the approved time, and he's still flying this thing, and he's flying it over, I want to say, he's flying it over Los Angeles, and oil pressure drops out of one of the engines, and it causes, so, do you know that on airplanes, you look at the the cone, and where all the props come out? Yeah. Those props can shift in pitch, depending on how much force they want to how much speed they want yeah well what happened when it lost oil pressure is the pitch on the propellers on one side reversed so it's like a boat motor you spin it one way it forces you forward you start spinning it the other way and the pitch goes the other way it starts trying to pull you back so he has one engine on one side almost trying to pull back and the other one trying to go forward and so he's duck yeah so he's trying to land this thing and he's like i'm going down i'm going down he's like i'm going to try to land at the la country club he fucking almost makes it to the country club and at like three houses back from the country club, it fucking drops and he loses too much altitude. He crashes into three houses. He, the last house that he hits, the the fuselage and everything stays relatively intact. I think the engines end up getting thrown off, but I mean, basically it erupts in a fireball because of all the fucking fuel that's leaking out of this thing. So he's able to get out of... He gets beat the fuck up during this crash. He gets thrown around the fucking cockpit. I, I, I mean, he's wearing a five-point harness, but these things are not like a racing seat where it's holding him No, in. you're still bouncing around. He's getting slammed up against the glass and everything. Despite that, he ends up being able to get out of the canopy. And while getting out, he ends up getting third-degree burns and everything. And he gets kind of away from the plane and a Marine that had been somewhere in the area saw it happen and ran in and basically, like, pulled him out and rescued him. And there's some type... I think it did happen, but he, for the rest of that guy's life, he sent him a check for, like, 
either 200 or two a month, 200 or $2,000, 200 or 2,000. I can't remember which amount for saving his life was sending him these checks on like a monthly basis. So <clears throat> just where my brain goes, brain goes with this, that Marine had to think that he was coming up on a UFO crash. I think it was, I mean, there's no way that you would know no, what that plane looked I, like. No, right? because it wasn't like outside the realm. It's not like a stealth fighter, the first stealth fighter compared to like a, a prop plane, but still it's top secret. Like they, it, it is there's but no it, way the public has seen that. They haven't seen that plane, but they've seen enough planes. It had wings. It had engines. Yeah. The whole thing about it, it was a spy plane. The point is it could fly higher and fly fast. But it still had the same properties of an airplane. It wasn't stealth. Okay. So, but I'm sure they heard and saw this plane coming in over the neighborhoods before it actually crashed. So they probably saw what was actually going yeah. on. So in this, and again, this is in 46. During, after this crash, he has a crushed collarbone, cracked ribs, a crushed chest, collapsed lung. Because of the crushing in his chest, it shifted his heart over into the other side of his chest cavity. So his heart was on his right side? Yeah. Holy shit. And third degree burns over like 70% of his body. And when they got him to the hospital, they were like, he's not going to like start putting affairs in order. He's not going to survive like the night, maybe like the next night. But he's he's not going to survive this. They called his recovery miraculous. Uh, he did end up getting hooked on opiates and codeine because of it. Yeah. You, you have to understand too, reconstruction during that time, 1940s, I mean – you're just, they're just being like, well, we can try to reset some stuff, but your body's going to have to kind of heal on its own. So any injury that your body doesn't heal to where you're then in constant pain, I, I can completely see why you would get hooked on codeine and opiates. Yeah, it's, they were doing the game, the literal game operation was probably based on him with them trying to just figure out and, what to And what could they back. even, what were they, like, if he's in that critical condition at that point where they think he's not going to survive, they're not going to operate on him no. to try to do anything. They're going to have to try to let some stuff settle before they're able to do anything. Swelling and just anything to be Trying to, to in there repair the collapsed lungs so he can fucking breathe and all that shit. When they... Well, that's could be another reason why they didn't think he was going to survive very long because when they kept putting the stethoscope on the left side, they're like, no heartbeat. Yeah, no shit. Uh, you're going to need to sh- <laughs> look at his chart, like shift that over like four or five inches. So he, while he's in there too, because of the burns on his body being so uncomfortable, hospital beds at this point, I think literally were just a flat bed and maybe the back could go up a little bit. He has his team of engineers design a hospital bed that's able to be like pneumatic and electrical that can shift in all positions. Uh, it kind of is a precursor and could possibly be the like prototype for what hospital beds are known as today. He never used it though. It got designed and I think he was out of the hospital by the time uh, or something like that. <clears throat> I'd use that shit at home. And then if you ever look at pictures of him, he was always clean shaven prior to this. And then he starts having a mustache after this. And it was to hide like a scar that he, oh, a big scar yeah. that he'd received in it. So this is his, his fourth, fourth crash. And I mean, he's been lucky to survive all of them up to this point. But I mean, at this, at this point, the next one, especially because of his addiction that he has now for opiates and coding, the weakened position of his body, he had to walk with a cane, of course, for the rest of his no. life. He, he was never the same like after this. No. How could you be? Yeah. And so despite this, the whole Spruce Goose thing and everything takes place after this. Oh, wow. Of his first flight for the Spruce Goose takes place after this. So and you he, can kind of see where after that, he still flew, I think, 
himself and everything, but I think his days of kind of piloting prototype aircraft and that kind of stuff were were done. I, I can't blame any prototype aircraft, though, because every time you said that he crashed, basically, mm-hmm. it was a situation where they're like, bro, you have so much fuel, you can go for so long. Don't go past that time. Mm-hmm. And every single time, he's like, okay, whatever. As a as a character study and most of the other <clears throat> podcasts I listen to, this is one thing that like I wish they would have just kind of sat and focused on. That One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is... Just as like a character study on this guy, yeah, he contributed all this stuff. He was at one point after he was forced to sell his shares in TWA due to, I'm going to list off the, I have a whole page dedicated to the mental shit. And that's where I'm like really interested in it. After the mental shit goes down with him and like his reclusiveness kind of kicks into high gear, he basically is forced to sell all of his shares of TWA and he ends up making... I want to say five hundred and like fifty plus million dollars off the sale of his shares, which at that point I think that officially because at one point he was the richest man either in America or the world. He got it, more money than God at that point. That's crazy. Oh yeah, definitely. That is so much money back then. Oh yeah, and so it, that if he wasn't before, that definitely makes him the richest man in either the United States or the world at one point. I think. So, throughout his life, now we're going to separate. We've done Howard. The Young Child, The Prodigy, Howard the Movie Man, Howard the Pilot, and the Aircraft Developer and everything. <clears throat> During all this time, he is dealing with like this severe... When you're rich enough, you're called eccentric, right? The only difference between crazy and eccentric is the, the size of your bank account, I think. Could be. Well, w- when I tell you about some of this stuff, you tell me if someone that didn't have an insane amount of wealth wouldn't be immediately committed to a mental institution. So some of the examples of like his severe OCD, and I think, I feel like that term isn't the right term. That's what they call it is severe OCD. And I've never experienced that myself. So I don't know. I guess that could be a completely debilitating medical condition that you have. So, and it's an umbrella for so many other things too, as far as within that, whether it's, yeah, rituals, anything like that that you do. OCD could be, it's kind of a It can be small things. It can be having to touch a light switch a certain way, or it can force you to basically never leave a room because you can't figure out the right way to leave or some Mm -hmm. shit like that. Something's going wrong. So there's some thought that like obsessive compulsive disorder can also be like a genetic uh, predisposition. So it's an argument between like, is it nature and nurture? Was it biologically taken from his mother and they maybe say quite possibly his father, but he had like an OCD for like business and shit, or is it behavioral because of what his mother and how she treated him the entire time growing up by giving him this almost fear of like the outside world and germs and dangers that while they are there, they're just something we deal with every day and they're not really something people give a second thought about. He, I also think too, Nature versus nurture in that situation, like nurture isn't just what you're predisposed to from them. It's the ritualizing that you see going on in Mm -hmm. your childhood, too. So it's not just you can be genetically predisposed to it. Especially if you're so isolated like that, where that's all he's seeing. That's basically like like his version of the world. Exactly. That's normal. That's just standard operating procedure for how people act. And uh, in a sense, I mean, he was in the real world. 
clearly from what he did, but he was never like a nine to five guy. He was no. always on the upper crust, so he never got to see what it was he like. He lived to, in the real world, but his world was at an elevated point uh-huh. where, aside from plane crashes, I don't know if there were ever repercussions. <laughs> so, and before I get into the before I get into the the mental stuff, going back and saying your whole thing about survivor's guilt. Yeah. So in. I might get the time wrong. I want to say 53. He ends up um, striking a man with his car and killing a pedestrian. (laughs) It's not funny, but it's. (laughs) And it is, he was drinking at the time. There were some reports he was drinking after everything was said and done, the toxicology and all that kind of stuff. They determined that he had one drink, so it wasn't. And that previous eyewitnesses when it first happened stated that the guy was standing like in a zone where cars pick up people where it's not supposed to be traffic Uh going through it. It somehow changes throughout the course of this investigation to where these people come back and say, actually, I think he did step out in front and Howard could do nothing. And the girl in the car with him was like, yeah, he couldn't do anything. He tried to stop that guy jumped in front of his car. Then Howard was like, sure, that's what happened. They're like, okay, I guess you couldn't do anything. Your case dismissed. So it went from, like, a Caitlyn Jenner situation to, like, plausible that you just couldn't do anything? Yeah, then what is his fault? It, it was the guy's fault. They made it into the guy who was struck. It was his fault for stepping out in front of Howard Hughes' vehicle. It's his fault for being dressed that way. Exactly. It was his fault. He was asking for it. So along with kind of the, the severe OCD, um, he always – he had, like you were saying, it's patterns. So he always – this is what he always ate. A New York strip, medium rare, dinner salad, side of peas. And he only ate the small peas. He would separate them out and only eat the small ones. I was with you until we hit the size of the peas. That's too far. But that's it. And like just for dinner or like every meal? <clears throat> Probably not every meal. Just for dinner. Okay. He would only eat eggs cooked by a specific person who was his personal cook. Um, and this was from a, an early age, like after he was emancipated and everything, like as soon as he started knowing, like, cause this comes from uh, information from Noah Dietrich who kind of wrote a like biography on him. I'll take that whenever you get a chance. Um, he was obsessed with trivial details when he was on movie sets, acting as a producer so much. So to the point where it got to the, how he became a director is he was on a movie set telling the director what to do. And one director, I think it was the second one on that movie that came in, finally got fed up and was like, if you want it fucking done, why don't you do it yourself? And he quit. Oh, yeah. And then Howard was like, okay, I'll just fucking do it myself. So kind of going back to Hell's Angels, that whole thing, it was not only just, you know, it needs to be for sound and all this kind of stuff. It was so many different details. The, you know, the clouds, they had to show the speed. Um I want to say there was something about, oh, what was it? There had to be certain stuff in the background that couldn't be visible, like just super trivial stuff. He had unpredictable mood swings where it would just like shit would just come out of nowhere, like on movie sets and everything. And then throughout his life, um, when he was 53 in um, 1958, and that would have been 58 would have been, I'm pretty sure that's after the X-11 crash. Yeah, because the X-11 was in 46. So he... 12 um, years later. Yeah, so he finds a... He, he's like, I want to watch a movie. He's like, I, can someone find a screening room like at a studio near my house? He's like, I feel like watching a movie. So in 58, he goes into a screening room 
watches a movie. Then he's like, I'm going to spend another day in here. I'm having a good time. I'm going to watch another movie. So two days turns into three, turns into four, turns into four months. It becomes a... Four months. Adam, he does not leave the screening room. Okay. Now the, the piss jar makes more sense. He only eats during the entire four months. All he eats is chicken, chocolate bars, and milk. He spends his time in there with Kleenex boxes. At this point, his OCD has become so bad that he's taking um, – every time he has to touch something, he pulls out a bunch of Kleenex and has to have Kleenex between him and touching stuff. He has rules, and he's stacking these Kleenex boxes up and everything. He's got hundreds of them. He, it, he has a policy that people are not to look at him when they come in to drop off his food and to take the – Piss jars that I'm guessing they've got to be either just designated piss jars or the milk bottles. Oh, he's just refilling them. Okay, and I want to talk to you about this too. Do you think he's shitting in these two? Or what do you think he's shitting? Because I could not find any information about where he shits, but he never left the room. So let's 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 hash this out. Do you think he's trying to drop he's eating chicken chocolate bars and milk? What is it first of all, what are these shits like? Not good. No. Not not pleasant. And I mean, a milk jug, the golf ball size opening in old school milk milk jugs, glass ones. He didn't. Uh, I don't think he used. So, jugs. do we think there's a bucket, and he's just shitting in this bucket? Yeah, uh, and he's rich enough to where it doesn't really matter how many times that happens. Like somebody's going to come in and get it when they drop off his. Chicken, oh, exactly. Milk and so chocolate. this leads back to my point: someone that does not have the financial capabilities that he has. Someone does this, their next stop, first they're getting fitted for a straitjacket, and then their next stop is the mental hospital. Yeah, I mean... he's also He also sits naked in the chair watching the movies at this time. He's also doing this naked. <laughs> That's immaterial. That's, when you're in that situation, you can be buck. He didn't bathe the entire time. Didn't yeah, shave. I, nothing. So it's interesting, I'm not saying that it's like a justification but to me like when i hear somebody do something like that that's so extreme my mind kind of starts almost reverse engineering it to see like where that would go as far as what would cause that kind of a triggering event and it really is like if he had some sort of a connection he had he had a connection to movies clearly because he made them right they crazy fucking thing man so like when you're sick or when you don't feel good you put on, you know, a natural thing is to put on a movie you've seen, one of your favorite movies. It makes you, takes your mind off of it. You know it's predictable. You know what's going to happen. It's comforting. And they said that that's always kind of been a thing, is that people have always kind of turned to those types of escapism, especially people, I guess, in chronic pain all the time. It's a form of comfort and escapism to be able to just watch that and try to get your mind off of it because you can yeah. immerse yourself in it so much. I, and to go with just kind of his life and his career. Okay, we got four plane crashes. Yeah. We're keeping tally, we got four plane crashes. One of them should have killed him. I think all of them probably should have. All of them had a high likelihood to yeah. kill him, of course. But that last one left him in, I, I don't even want to imagine like what that like pain, like that chronic pain your body would be in the entire time. Especially now, I mean, of course, you're taking opiates and all that kind of shit to go and kill that. But then what's that then now doing to your mind? Yeah. So it's like you're compounding everything. Well, and the way that I look at it is so far, he's kind of had like two loves in his life, right? 
He's had movies, which I'm sure he probably, like, it It scratched an itch. I don't know if he loved it, but it scratched an itch. I think he loved it. And then The Flying is kind of mm-hmm. the second act of love. Whenever he would think about, like, flying or anything like that, there would be immediate trauma in it. For him to lock himself in a movie theater and be by himself, like, at his Safe. base level. There's no germs yeah. in here except my own, which is crazy that someone that's so obsessed with germs and contamination. Is cool with pissing and shitting. They say there's this weird thing with germaphobes, though, is it's not the germs off of your own self. It's not the germs that you produce. It's all of the exterior threats. I could see that. Yeah, I mean, you're not worried about yourself. If you have to drink piss, you're going to drink your own or someone else's. Yeah, you're always going to go with your own product. I, I mean, your own brand. Yeah. So I, I see that making sense to me is like movies were something that he was good at and he really loved. So to be able to immerse himself mm-hmm. in these movies, these pictures, these things that he was good at and like really enjoyed as opposed to the other side of his life of flying and knowing that fucking almost every time he flied, it felt like it ended really poorly. Yeah, or it, or the last time that he did it. Well, I mean, he it just it. traumatized him so bad the last time. Exactly. Every time you go up there, you're wondering if something's going to happen. It basically has spoiled something that you love so much. It's this weird confliction about like I love doing this, but it, it's going to kill me. Yeah, I think it's going to fucking kill me. Uh, and so he was just kind of trying to, uh, I assume, and this is all just the ramblings of a guy who. Thinks about I, but I feel I like this though. I like the aspect of it because you don't know anything about him, so you have no preconceived notions. So you're able to hear the information about him, and even it might be a quick judgment, but you're able to come to a natural conclusion about him and be like, "This is someone that sounds like, like." I think with genius, genius and madness, I think they're two sides of the same coin. Fine line. And I think that if you have a certain level of genius for something i think the madness is almost its shadow and at some point like the shadow is going to get longer than you know dusk your shadow is so long and it's going to outweigh the genius or you're not going to be able to keep tabs on it especially if you've been through all this trauma you've got these fucking mental issues not only that now you're under the influence of drugs almost all the time um the good shit too yeah he had this thing when he was in the theater too where if someone was handing him something in a bag, they had to hold it out at a 45-degree angle, so he was able to reach into the bag without touching any of the bag to grab what was out of it. Like, it, it's just crazy stuff like that. And, like, as a... Almost like as a, a character study or, like, a human study on him, it's it's so weird that, like, there's such extreme sides to this. Like, the madness is equal to the the genius but like, it's he's wildly fascinating. I would say that his madness, I mean, uh, that's kind of tough though too because it's like on a scale. It's sort of what you said. Like madness, I feel like far outweighs the genius just because it is so intense and so extreme. And he did do amazing things. Yeah. Clearly, maybe part of the aircraft thing was a bit of madness. Though. Yeah. If he was so mad about going faster and flying farther and doing all this, you have to probably have a bit of crazy to the like. Even the genius is influenced by crazy because mm. you have to. These are crazy ideas. You have to either have a deal with death or be so far out of your mind just to think that that's just not going to happen. Like you're you're just invincible. So, do you think that like someone who grows up in an environment where they have all the options available for them. There's never a no. When you grow up in wealth, I think it's very hard to hear no. So when you have all these (laughs) possibilities, when there's never a no, when you almost feel untouchable, like bad things cannot happen to you, do you think that does give someone like this kind of an air of invincibility to be like, 
nothing bad's going to happen because nothing's bad has happened to me in my entire life. I mean, well, I mean, my parents died early on and everything like that. But at the same time, he's never himself really been in a position where he was in like more, he, he always, always to succeed. So at a certain point, like normal person, maybe one or two crashes. The second one I could see because he yeah. is able to walk away from it. So easily. he's like, if I can just make all my crashes like this, this will be fine. Then after that third one, you think you would just kind of hang it up and be like, maybe I just let other people fly or I don't try, you know, yeah. any crazy flying stunts or any of that shit. So before we hit the flying, just what you laid out is so odd that it gets brought up right now because what's up in the air was uh, Double H. Down below in the Ocean Gate was a billionaire who owned a C- or the CEO billionaire mm-hmm. that owned an exploration company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he probably hadn't had a lot go wrong in his life until he built a very subpar sub that was built, like, not well. I think, and from what I've heard of the details on that, so he had developed this sub, and all these people were like, this thing isn't safe, this thing isn't safe. Like, it doesn't meet any of the fucking standards. He ends up testing it, and it, it works. Yeah. So by his rationale, everyone else is wrong. It's not... I got lucky and the conditions were right for this thing to not implode. And he's like, cool. So everyone else is just fucking wrong. So this could be a little Howard Hughesian I, maybe thought process. I think there's, there's always going to be people like this. Look at fucking, I, I don't like him, but look at fucking Elon Musk. Yeah. Like not even the squirrel turd. Exactly. He's got this obsession with aerospace and, you know, electric cars and all this kind of stuff. And Twitter. But then you talk to him and you're like, there's some fucking crazy in there. The fuck is wrong with you? And he's also someone that grew up in wealth, so he has that air of invincibility or of superiority Ew. and that kind of shit, just from a mental, you know, mental facilities. So, I mean, and it doesn't really stop there with, with good old Howard. So he gets obsessed at some point with this weird movie called Ice Station Zebra about, like, exploration in the Arctic or Antarctica or some shit. He has him loop it in his house on constant loop, the housekeeper said, not how many times it looped, but how many times they saw him sit and watch it. He watched it 158 times. Like, I I don't know if I've seen my favorite movie. I don't think I've seen my movie, my favorite movie even close to that over the course of years and years and years and years and years. Yeah, this just touches something weird for me because, I mean... I, at night, I go to sleep usually by TV, and I would probably say that I've seen episodes of Always Sunny like a hundred times, just because it's not a full like episode. A, maybe not, but like if something catches me, like the other guys again, another weird thing. Okay, where, here's the thing though: episodes, yeah, of Always Sunny, they're different. Each episode is different, so you've seen a hundred and fifty episodes of Sunny. Oh, way more. You than haven't. That. Okay, I, I bet I. But you haven't seen the. Same episode. I've seen Charlie McDennis at least 50 plus times. Well, that's a fan-fucking-tastic Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, there's certain things. The other guys, I probably had a year maybe and even still go back to it, and I hear the beginning of it. Those are good movies. Ice Station Zebra is this, like, weird fucking... That's true. Yeah. And there is... But I think there is something like this similar comfort that maybe that gave him that, like, listening to something Mm -hmm. before bed or something like that, like, the rhythm that you get... It's got to be the same thing, but since he was a little bit different with his OCD, like it just kicked everything like that into hyperdrive. And, I mean, some other stuff that might have contributed. Did you know that there's this thing called neurosyphilis? (laughs) Huh? 
How do you neurosyphilis. Get that? Oh, I, I explain to me neurosyphilis, and I got a question about the man's love life because this is. I have important. an entire section okay, on that because okay, okay, you're good. gonna. I was okay. gonna segue into when you said his loves were, and I I was gonna actually say yes, I do believe those were his loves, but this guy got a fucking round. Okay, so neurosyphilis, which this is how he caught syphilis. If you get syphilis and it goes uncured or untreated, which at that point I don't think they had a cure for it, the treatments for syphilis were, oh my God, what were they? It was before penicillin, I think. They didn't use penicillin. It was mercury and something else that they did in injections. That makes you fucking crazy. You're not even allowed to touch mercury now because it'll fucking poison you and make you crazy. And that just so injected into your veins. When syphilis... <laughs> gets to an advanced stage, it can affect you neurologically and it causes an infection of the central nervous system. And he got syphilis because he liked to hook up with the ladies. All right. So I'm going to get to his love life in just a second. I just want to, I want to close out because he has a Vegas stint. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yes. The, okay. Now we're getting different. Okay. I saw this guy in a different light before you said At that he some got point, around dude, in Vegas. After he, after he left the, um, he came out after, after that four months in that screening room, he came out and he's like, all right, um, I'm good now. Let's, let's get back to business. And he was just like, tried to get back to like living normal life. It was just a manic depressionary yeah, then, episode that lasted four months. He, yeah. And then he went and got like a hotel room in downtown Los Angeles he rented out the suite, and then he had a room for his wife. He got married. Um, he was married again. I'll get into that in a second. He had another room for girlfriends, and he lived like that for a while. He then moves, and I think he kept moving around to different hotels because it, if you don't have a residence, apparently there's some type of like tax break or tax thing that you don't have to pay taxes. I think in, like, it's California. like pilots now. You can only be in a certain area yeah. for so long. But they didn't have that back then. So as long as uh, he was moving around, he didn't have a residence in a set state. So we would move around to all these hotels and shit. Um, he went to the Desert Inn in 1966. And apparently he had a problem with the owner of the Desert Inn. And so he fucking bought the Desert Inn in 1967. Uh, okay. So we talked about that. In the Las Vegas episode. I think we did. I completely forgot about Howard Hughes from then. I think I saw yeah. something similar or something Because the Desert Inn was one that was One of like run. the first, yeah. So he turns the entire eighth floor into like the Hughes Operation Center for running like the aircraft and all that kind of stuff. And then turns the entire ninth floor of the Desert Inn into his personal oh, residence. Yeah. So he's just living in fucking Vegas. Not only that, he starts buying up other casinos he buys one casino called, I want to say, the Silver Slipper because its neon light was shining into his bedroom. And he bought the fucking casino so he could take the neon light down. This was at the same time that they were also still doing, like, testing for, like, during the... This was right pre-Cold War, but they were ramping up and designing bigger and bigger fucking nuclear bombs and yeah. shit. So they were testing them outside Vegas. A fucking germaphobe and fucking particulates and radiation... He was so fucking, like, scared of this shit that he was trying to bribe Congress to stop this shit. He was trying to dig up dirt on congressmen to use against them, to have them pass a bill to stop it. And at one point, he offered a million dollars to both Nixon and I can't remember who was before Nixon. Uh, Eisenhower, Eisenhower at some point. Yeah. And uh, $1 million to them if they would stop testing that close to Vegas in Nevada. So, I mean, it, it, this just kind of goes to say, like, what kind of person this was. Is I don't think he ever ran into a problem that he think couldn't be solved in one way or another by either his intellect or by money. 
when he's just like, I'm just going to try to bribe the Ooh. fucking president. I, I think it's solved by 100% intellect. Okay, because I'm, if if you have money, that's kind of secondary to what's going on. Mm-hmm. Because then you reach the point where like you're just smart enough to know that you've reached the end of those means. So you're just like, okay, well, I'll just lean back on the money. Like yeah. it, it's an intelligent move. It's to always be worked. Like, yeah, I have it's all this worked. money. That's a well. smart move. Yeah. So getting to another one of our episodes, this is going to tie a whole bunch of shit into stuff we never thought. So um, he is staying next to a lake in Nicaragua. In um, December of seventy two, when like a, a four point five or five earthquake hits, and I think it damages like the hotel, and so for a few days he's staying out in this huge tent in front of the hotel, and then he's like, "Well, I'm gonna I think I'm gonna go back to the states." The next night he stays at the Royal Palace, who is currently under the occupation of the Samosas. Ah, uh, the oh, okay. So prior to this is the dictator reign, or not dictator, but. Royal family before the Sandinistas. Oh, yes. Okay. So this just fucking ties back into Iran Contra and some of the stuff we talked about for that. Um, yeah, the, the royal family was like, we were very honored to like host Mr. Hughes and everything. And then he ends up flying to like for Miami like the next day. So before I get to the end of Howard's life, my friend, ah, uh, the love or not even the loves of his life. Sorry. I just put relationships and put it in quotes because okay. that's all they really were for him. And I don't know if even relationships is the right word. Now, transactions, uh, transactions at, at some point. Yes, there were a lot of those. Can we so, pee before we get into it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bathroom break. All right. While we take a break from class and uh, take care of some business, you can also take care of some business. If you don't follow us on Instagram or Twitter already, our Instagram handle is historically high pod. That's historically high pod, and our Twitter is historically high. That's historically hi. All right, and back to our show. All right, bladder's empty. Take your seats. All right. Where to begin with Howard's relationships? Okay, so we're going to talk about the marriages first. Knock those out. So we talked about how he's married to Ella Rice. Um, they were divorced after four years. So she went back to Houston like in 1929 and filed for divorce. He married a woman named Jean Peters in 57. So we have a big gap right there. I think it's, what's that, a 28-year gap? And he had a prior romance with her back in 47. They broke up. Apparently while they were together, he had guys that would stalk her and follow her around. That continued after they'd broken up during that spell. Um, it was so bad, in fact. So she was an actress. That's going to be a common theme here. Um, and like, there was even an instance in which she was filming with one of these co-stars. Um, he, he was you know, a male co-star. Uh, they became friends and everything. And at some point, he was a, this guy was like cornered by two of Hughes guys and was like, we will destroy your career <laughs> if you keep this shit up. And so... This and, is and he casino, was casino, man. Shit, he was fully aware this shit was happening. So looking at the list... And these, some of these names are going to be familiar. Some of them won't. So the women that it's been confirmed that he dated include Joan Crawford, Deborah Paget, Billy Dove, Faith Domergue, which this might not make you like him. This Faith woman, she was like 15 when they dated, and he was like 30, 35. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah, that's, that's not good. Um, glad you actually, I'm actually glad you put her in there just so I could kind of level. Yeah, I need to, I, I, I don't want to, and the big thing I don't want to do during this is I want this to be, uh, what am I trying to say here? Uh, impartial, apathetic. impartial look at, at Howard and let everyone else kind of be the judge and judge the, the genius and the madness equally. 
So we got Betty Davis. You're all, a lot of people familiar with Betty Davis. Yvonne DiCarlo, Don, DiCarlo Ava Gardner. Are you familiar with Ava Gardner? Mm-hmm. Smoke Show. She was a huge star. Started like Humphrey Bogart and stuff and everything. Okay. Uh, Olivia de Havilland, Catherine Hepburn. Him and Catherine Hepburn. Is had that a Audrey's sister? Audrey Hepburn. I know that it's, is it? All right. Let's see. Hold on. I'm going to have to click on Catherine Hepburn and then go back. She... I would assume two Hollywood starlets. I don't know. It would be rough to have uh, the same last name. Like, you would probably want to change that as a stage name to not go against each other. I do not think that was her sister. Look it up as I'm going through this. So, in addition to her, and they had... um, I'm not sure how long they were together. I think it was for a few years. Uh, Hedy Lamar. Hedy Lamar. Huh? Hedy Lamar? Hedy Lamar. God damn. They're not related. Okay. Ginger Rogers, Janet Lee, Pat Sheehan, Gloria Vanderbilt. The Vanderbilt. That's uh, Anderson Cooper's mom. Was it? I think so. Or at least maybe related. Uh, I think he's a Vanderbilt. Big family there, yeah. Um, Mamie Van Doren, Jean Jean Tierney. And then he also proposed to Joan Fontaine several times. Um, Gene Harlow, does that... I know Jack. I, I know, know Jack Harlow. Jean Harlow was a movie star back then. She actually was in Hell's Angels. She came with him to the premiere, but I don't think they had a relationship. He didn't like her personality or some shit. <laughs> so good for her. Yeah, good for her. I don't know if it was her choice though. I think it was more him. So this, I'm she trying to think. A bullet. So I'm trying to think of like how to compare this to nowadays. So this guy puts like like prime John Mayer. Derek Jeter, A-Rod, combined would be about what the level it would be on. Yeah. So this would be like someone in Hollywood dating, if we're going to go back to a time that I like to, a simpler time, I'm talking dating Jessica Biel, Jessica Simpson, all the Jessicas, Rachel Lee Cook, um, what's the chick uh, from all the Scream movies, Nev Campbell, Uh pretty much anyone that was popular at that time. Dating them all. He's sort of like Leo, except for everybody was famous. Cause I'm sure they were, and they were all, young and some the of these women were over the age of 22 years old. Okay. So not Leo. So not Leo. Yeah. Expiration date for that. I, there's probably a reason that they picked him to play Howard Hughes. I mean, <laughs> no, that's not the reason. What does he play? No. How, what's Howard Hughes's movie? The Aviator. Never seen it. Okay. Never well, even heard watch of it. it. That's, I mean, it's, okay. it's, it's a decent movie. But he's movie. actually, that's interesting that they chose him. Yeah. Maybe, but, maybe he fucked his way into the role. But I mean, and here's the thing though too, is he was, even when he was in relationships, he, he wasn't even like trying to be discreet. He would literally be in relationships like with like Catherine Hepburn and be going to like premieres with like these other starlets and shit and being seen out in public. And I mean, I I think this is just one of those things where he, someone that like has like that obsessive compulsion and is concerned with germs and all this stuff, he seemed to be like he get around a lot, and not be concerned about where he was putting his dick. That is weird because you would think that that would be the central protection that you would want. Like, an, That's I guess where you get syphilis, well, man. So syphilis was probably the only thing that they really had identified at that point, right? I don't know. 
I don't like, know the history of VD. Obviously, AIDS wasn't an issue for him. I mean, I'm sure it existed, but no one knew what it was. Well, you'd have to think that that would drive him nuts, too, that he got syphilis and then found out about it. Like, that would... But that, at that point, if it wasn't, like, a major thing and he was rich and he's like, I can afford treatments, maybe that was just... Maybe... What was it used to be called the rich man's disease? Gout? Yeah. Maybe syphilis was just, like, the rich, the playboy's disease or some shit. Like, know, you buddy. weren't a baller until it burned when you peed. To a germaphobe, though, that would have to hit so much harder. Do you think that, like, and, of course, it turned into the neurosyphilis and everything, so it actually did affect his central yeah, nervous system. Yeah, it just, it basically um, verified all of his concerns. Yes, but, like, <laughs> what would that be like? So that's the one thing. You could wash your hands as many times as you want, be in a sterile environment, but the thing that is infected is on you. Do you think he ever got like crazy thoughts? I mean, like I got to cut this thing off. Like sitting in that movie theater naked, he's sitting there watching it as he pees into a milk bottle. And he's like, this thing is so dirty. I just wish I could yank it off right Mm -hmm. now. I'm going to (laughs) try. But so, I mean, a a legendary, legendary Coxman. I don't use that word lightly, but at the same time, not going about it in the the best way, in my opinion, not really like parting ways in a relationship and then moving on to the next one. He was just pretty much just, and what's scary is how much of the syphilis do you think this guy spread? Yeah, he was a super spreader for sure. But there, I mean, that, that falls pretty in line with the billionaire that never gets told no is you can kind of flaunt and do that stuff out in the open. And we still see it. Not that big of a deal. Yeah, we still see it. And it's just this. He's not going to be any less rich because it happens. Exactly. And he's not going to be running short on puss either. Like he's, Yeah, he's not going to become like, he's going to become unpopular to like who? Was he a decent looking dude? He wasn't bad looking. I mean, he was, I think he was like 6'4". He was kind of a slender guy, but I mean, he oh. was, he was... Yeah, he was good looking. He wasn't movie star good looking, but I mean, he was good looking enough to where people are like, he's pretty, he's pretty cute. How much money does he have? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Him, him, please. His mustache is atrocious. I know. And I'm guessing, and again, that wasn't something he grew because it was fashionable. It was trying to hide that scar. Yeah. That he got in that accident. Well, kind of at the end of the road and everything, um, after the Vegas thing and like Nicaragua, after Vegas, he he was already kind of a recluse at that point, but he got to be so much of a recluse that he literally would like travel and stay in places like on islands, like outside the country. And for the longest time, no one like really ever saw him in the public eye. And then in April of 76, he was on an airplane back from, I want to say the Bahamas maybe, to Houston, to the medical center in Houston. And he died on board the aircraft while it was on its way to Houston. And when he got there, man, they said that he was so unrecognizable. He was still, you know, of course he's still six, four. He was barely 90 pounds. He had slender man. They had to, to make sure it was a definitive confirmation that it was Howard Hughes. The FBI had to run prints on him. I'm sure that's also for the purpose of like, company oh yeah and like confirming like yeah. that kind of stuff but still to not even be able to like he he had they think they said when they did the autopsy they find found five broken off needles in his like in his veins just from the probably at that point probably still the you know opiates morphine codeine whatever it yeah was. he could have been on a drip while he was on the craziest thing though when they did the autopsy 
everything except his kidneys were in like fine workable condition. He was like extremely malnourished and everything. You know, it could have been a combination of like, yeah, kidney failure, of course. But at the same time, like what if he just stopped from a, you know, a mental health standpoint, just stopped caring or eating or taking care of himself. I mean, that's, that's highly likely kind of going down the list and being like, yeah, I could see how that could, you know, degrade into that. Well, and as his, as you get older and those mental health issues start to really set in deep, mm-hmm. I mean, who's to say that he stopped taking literally like any sort of food into his body because he was so worried about germs or anything exactly. like that. Or his personal chef finally died and he couldn't eat his eggs anymore because that was the one guy that he could couldn't make get breakfast. chicken, chocolate bars, and milk. Yeah, except for the guy standard. that made the chicken died. And Milton Hershey wasn't going to be this chocolate bar of choice. That's true. So, yeah, I, all around interesting cat. I, I feel like this is like, I don't know. I, and maybe I'm wrong for saying this because there were like he had three three body count probably. I mean, was it his fault when the plane crashed and the other two guys died? He was piloting. Okay, so, yeah, so I'll say yeah. He's got three, I mean, three bodies sure under most, his belt. Most responsibility, I will say, will fall on the pilot during a crash. Yeah. So uh, besides those three, which can't overlook those, I mean, they're death, so that automatically... Oh, you know, well, during Hell's Angels, I think two or three pilots, stunt pilots died. Yeah. That's, I assume, business. But I, I it, think it was just, it was collateral. Yeah. For him. It was just something that was bound to happen, I guess. Besides that, though... It's such a low stakes thing because it wasn't like besides the people's houses that he completely obliterated with the spy plane. Yeah. Like he was really sort of how many people died in that? I wonder. Yeah, could be. Yeah. So his body count's definitely higher, and I'm giving him credit for yeah. we are. But besides that, he's sort of harmless. Like there's really it's low stakes with how nuts he was. Yeah. Like he was sort of the only victim of what was going on besides all the people that he killed mm-hmm. was just himself, really. Yeah, and I think that's probably why he he's looked upon as positively as he is mm-hmm. because it was mostly self-inflicted and everything. And I think more so, like one of the fascinating things is it was this weird juxtaposition fall from grace. You're like, this guy turned into this guy? And you're like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it works sometimes. I, and his fall's weird because it was just a personal fall because financially in the end, I'm sure he was still making tons. Well, you said he had to divest from everything though, right? He did, but he started doing other stuff. Like yeah, he, he was still making he money. He ended up opening like the Hughes Medical Center and everything. He put money into studying like electronics and like aerospace for like space satellites yeah. or like satellites and space travel. All these end up getting split up between like at some point Lockheed bought one and Boeing bought one and I think not Halliburton. I, it might have been fucking Halliburton. Oil. Could be. Yeah. Bought bought something. But, I mean, and he did, he tried to do some decent things kind of toward the end. I think one of the things he did is he, when he did the medical center, he basically gave Hughes tools to this medical research facility and was like, use everything that they make. That's all for you yeah. guys. And then it turned them into a nonprofit. So, but I mean, it, the, the biggest, the best, I guess, kind of way I can define Howard Hughes is just, uh, he's complicated. It's a complicated person. And I think that those are some of the most interesting people. When you have such different facets, 
like this guy in the public eye for the longest time, all of this stuff didn't come out until later. Like when people started like actually talking about it, like people didn't find out about the four months in the screening room till like yeah, way after no one, no one knew about it because everyone was just protecting him, insulating him. If uh-huh. anyone found out about this, the company would go under and none of us would have our meal ticket anymore. So there was a lot of stuff being swept under the rug, but, and, and that's to say, what, what do we not know? Mm-hmm. If this is the stuff that came out, what's, you know, I'm guessing maybe some of it is still not known. Yeah, I, I mean, I, to me, I don't really look at him with any. Obviously, he had value. He he did some great things. He did some real bad things. I think he's been called like the father of American aviation, which I, I mean, I think it's a fitting, fitting yeah, role. Yeah, I would I would say definitely. But but other than that, like looking at him, he's just for me. Just hearing everything that you told me mm-hmm. about him, it's just kind of like, huh. That person existed in this world and made an indelible mark on the world. Mm-hmm. And there's still, like, we're still talking about him, clearly. He has movies and all that stuff made, but he yeah. was just, like, a real guy. Like, and his we character. Have, we have iterations of mm-hmm. him now. People that looked at that and was like, I'm going to do that. Like, going back to it, fucking Elon. Elon is kind of a Howard Hughes-esque character. Uh, Tony Stark is based on Howard Hughes. Genius as a child. Uh, instead of an aircraft, he inherits a weapons manufacturing and basically just does all this stuff that he wants. They just turned Tony Stark into a superhero. They just took it to the next level. So, I mean, someone like this is definitely the blueprint for on the positive side of what he contributed or what he did financially and like success and all that. That's like a blueprint for what people want to emulate. You just have to try to figure out if you're able to emulate that kind of stuff without also carrying some type of the crazy with it. Hey, you're just larger than life. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's the best way to say it. That it's, that's a great way to end it. <laughs> Howard Hughes, larger than life. Take that how you want it. Doesn't have to mean good. Doesn't have to mean bad. Yeah. That was a good one. I, I really, I enjoy these a lot. And the fact that I had zero clue about Howard Hughes going into it. I learned a lot about this guy. I didn't, I had no idea. I'm glad I'm glad I could teach you. And I'm glad if, if any of you didn't already know this much about Howard Hughes or you're just joining us because you like listening to us bullshit, we appreciate it. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, that is another one from us, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically hi. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.